Hey everyone, welcome to episode 92 of the Switch Focus podcast. I'm your host, Andy Corrigan. Uh, with me is Andrew Brown. Hello. And Ginny Wu. Hello. <laughs> uh, and we've got a packed show this week. We're going to talk about uh, Dead by Daylight, Overland, uh, Darksiders 2, Dragon Quest XI S, uh, Echoes of an Elusive Age, and Ori in the Blind Forest. Plus we're going to talk about uh, life with a Switch Lite after one of us made a massive mistake. Not really. Okay, so updates from the previous episode. I finally finished Doom 3. It took me yeah. a while. Uh, now, I think Ginny was missing that week, but Andrew, you remember how I was saying that 3 relies less on monster closets? You're wrong! Yes, right out of the window in the final quarter of that game, it is just fake walls galore. <laughs> Some of it explainable by the, the merging of hell and the UAC facility that you're in. Uh, other times it's just here's just a wall because walls and uh, with that the rhythm of the game goes from being like this tense dark survival horror shooter into screw you the video game <laughs> I, I enjoyed it a lot uh, the campaign tops out about 11 hours long but it, it does start to feel like it drags those last two hours I, I feel like it should have finished a little bit earlier uh, there is a DLC called uh, Resurrection of Evil where they give you like a, a gravity gun sort of thing called a grabber I've decided I needed to take a break after the way it dragged at the end, so I decided to start Nino Kuni instead, uh, which I'm enjoying. I've just finished rescuing Ding Dong Dell <laughs> and about to venture into the world, so that was good. And I also finished Link's Awakening. Uh, nothing really to add on to last week's discussion, just it's done. I loved it. Please play it. Uh, and Ginny, you have been catching up on stuff that came out while we were well, while you were away. Sorry, uh, Astral Chain. Yeah, uh, Astral Chain. Um, well, I've been consumed by a lot of um, anime games this this week. Um, I very, very stupidly started a new Persona 5 playthrough because I couldn't wait until Royal, apparently, <laughs> like an idiot. Um, wow, okay. <laughs> also recently been told that Code Vein is apparently 1000% my thing. So that's a thing. I'm also juggling, and then Astral Chain, um, <laughs> and um, I think out of all three of them, obviously I've played Persona Five before, um, so really it's just Astral Chain and um, Code Vein that are sort of, I guess, the new ones to me. And it just, I am enjoying my time with Astral Chain, but I don't know what I was, I don't know what I was expecting combat-wise, really. Um, but it, it is, it is good it, it it's it's fine it is incredibly already i can see the plot is incredibly contrived but i am i'm fine with it i'm i am somehow not as morally opposed to the to the cops thing as i originally envisioned i would be um it's because they don't try to do anything with it it's just they happen yeah to the cops. exactly yeah. so it's it's not like we're not sort of making any sort of Detroit become human-esque statements about cops and humanity. I'd, I'd still say Astral Chain does that stronger than Detroit become human. <laughs> That's not setting the bar very high. <laughs> um, no. But no, I mean, mechanically enjoyable. I love it. I think the combat is probably... It is very it is very satisfying. It is very smooth. I can kind of see what you guys are talking about, but how late game that stuff kind of opens up a bit more. I'm really excited to, to play my way through it. So I am looking forward to that the most. Uh, but... Untitled Goose Game, I finished it. It was very hard. <laughs> it was? I, I was very mechanically challenged by it. <laughs> no, seriously. Add that to the list of things I wasn't expecting. 
Seriously, um, I just, I don't know what it is, but I just found the control stuff fine. That all made sense to me. It wasn't like I didn't understand how the controls work, but I just would get into such a panic every time a human would start to chase me or get mad at me that I would just react how I would react in real life. I was being chased by a human, was just drop my things and just gaff it. (laughs) I was ostensibly very horrific at taking off all my goose objectives at the start because I just kept panicking when the cast would turn around and see me and spot me. I just go, right, hands up, I'm leaving the scene. And it took me forever to get stuff done. My most reliable method was chucking stuff into the lake and like potting it along until it was too deep for him to reach and then kind of <laughs> collecting it that way because I was too scared to get close to him. So I found that I found the game very difficult actually. <laughs> But um no it was it was fun I really enjoyed the the objectives after um I did explore the thicket very thoroughly um oh, after good. the suggestion from you guys and it, it it made sense because it made more sense because of that I, I feel and it's just delightful it's, it's been great I'm recommending it to everyone else uh, with the caveat that obviously if you if you have a flight instead of a fight response you might find the game challenging <laughs> like I did. But no, it was it was good fun. Tough, but it was good fun. <laughs> I think the only one I struggled with was getting the groundskeeper's hat off because I couldn't work yeah. out how to get him low enough. Uh, yeah. And then, yeah, I, I won't go into the how you do that, but yeah. <laughs> that was the only <laughs> bit I struggled with. And one, once I'd learned how to manipulate the, the NPCs to do what I want, then yeah, that yeah. was where I, 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 I didn't look back from there. Uh, okay, well, let's get on with the rest of the show. Okay, just before we get on to what we've been playing in terms of software, I was just going to talk quickly about life uh, with the Switch Lite. Last week we both talked about the, the Switch Lite and acknowledged its release. Uh, both me and, and Ginny said, you know, we were definitely interested. I, I'd sort of had a 180 on that since it was announced where I definitely wasn't interested. And then as I've, as I've sort of seen more about them, I, I became quite a bit more interested. Um, and me and my wife had a, t- a couple of days off work earlier this week to do some shopping. Uh, mistakes were made, and now I own a Switch Lite in turquoise. Uh, so this was bought to complement my my main Switch. So uh, my my thinking about why I bought one is yes, the the original Switch is definitely a portable, but it is quite large. Doesn't make it convenient to like stick in your pocket it's i don't find it convenient to play on the bus i don't uh, find it convenient anywhere else other than like if i'm going to a building for a couple of hours so like i could take it to work and play over lunch inside i'd like i wouldn't take it out or to a family members or whatever even holding it in the house i always feel like i have to treat it with kid gloves i i feel like it it feels very fragile like oh. i don't feel like i can just keep it in my bag all the time and despite me treating it with kid gloves it, it got cracked vents so was, yeah so that doesn't help that uh, so because of that i only ever use it around the house so i'll use it in the office or the back room if we're sat out there so that they're they're the only real uses where i take it portably so the good news is the switch light is definitely better built to be a portable mm-hmm. uh, the the build quality so it's smaller, a little bit larger than a Vita, but not by much. It definitely makes it more convenient to keep in your bag. It does fit in my pocket, which is cool. It feels incredibly well built. Like the plastic on this thing feels nice, thick, and and chunky, even though the device form factor is really small. Uh, the vents are a lot thicker than on the main one. 
It comes with a proper D-pad, which I've had no issues with. I'm not one of those that is fussy around the, you know, the individual buttons for the D-pad on the main main switch. So that hasn't been a as big a revolution for me as it might have been. And the buttons are a lot less clicky on on the light. Uh, they're really soft and spongy and feel really nice. Uh, as to what it doesn't have, it doesn't connect to the TV. Obviously, it doesn't have removable Joy Cons, and there's no kickstand. Uh, so the downside to that is that um, it's not as modular so like if you break an analog stick the whole device is is practically screwed whereas on the existing one you can just replace your joy cons etc that that that's that's sort of a downside and if if that is actually a downside it's only gonna be known in a couple of months like the the joy con drift thing there was early concerns about that but it, it became a much bigger thing later uh, so it'll be interesting to see how that goes and then how to use it as a second switch. So when you connect to your switch to the internet, you have to set one of them as a primary device. And only the primary device can boot digital games when you're offline. Uh, the secondary device needs to check in with Nintendo before anything will play. So that means it's more convenient to have the Switch Lite as your primary, which mm. um, it's not my main device, so I kind of, uh, from a... You're just a mental thing. I hate that conceptually. And the original Switch is my secondary because that, that's going to be around a Wi-Fi connection pretty much all the time. Uh, unfortunately, that means when you do play a digital game on your secondary Switch, uh, it does take a couple of moments to check that you're allowed to play it. Uh, this is digital games only. So it's not quite the instant boot that you used to if you're just you know used to playing on, on the original Switch. Uh, I think a much better system would have been that the console would need to check in once every 24 to 48 hours rather than per game launch. I think I think that would be much better. But because, you know, they're both handhelds, I can see their reasoning. They don't want people installing a game on a second device and then just giving it to their mate who can play offline for, you know, forever. So I can, I can see why they've gone uh, with that route. So the, that's the solution I've gone with. I've set my Switch Lite as my primary because that's the one that's going to be offline most of the time because it'll be out and about with me uh, and the fat switch is my secondary not a problem if you're playing physical but obviously not every game on switch has a physical release so there there is that to consider uh, now transferring the save between consoles so if, if i'm wanting to play uh, for example fire emblem uh, and i want to pick it back up on my my main switch moving the saves across are super easy you just make sure it's backed up on the switch light and then go over to your fat switch and then download it and it just takes over your original save and I've had no problems with that. Back when Vita had uh, cross save I had a couple of issues where uh, stuff would stop halfway through and then my save would be stuffed. In one case just on the one device which was annoying. Haven't had any issues like that so far. I for, Obviously it's been a big deal that some of the, the switch software doesn't support cloud save and um, but in that case what you can do is a save transfer over your wi-fi so it just moves all the the data from one switch to the other uh, and you can do that as many times as you want um i haven't ha had to do that yet because i haven't wanted to play a game that that has that mm -hmm. in all the reviews you'll have seen with the switch light or guides on how to use it as a second device everyone keeps saying it's not as easy as it is on other platforms there's a couple of arguments to that neither of the other platforms are handheld so no one can just go take a game and play it offline forever. Mm. The PlayStation 4 setup is exactly the same as the Switches. If you have multiple PS4s, one has to be 
be a primary, the other one is gimped in a couple of ways to prevent people from just stealing games. It works exactly the same. The, where it is not quite as good is as the Xbox One, which automatically does everything by cloud save, downloads everything by cloud save, and manages that all for you. That's just, that is the one thing Xbox has got 100% right <laughs> this generation. Um, so it's it's not the big negative that people are making out. So with, with that, um, like with just the build quality, I already feel much happier taking this out with me. I feel like I can whip it out to play for 10 minutes uh, if I have to get public transport or if I'm taking a break at work or I'm, you know playing in a coffee shop at my lunch i feel much more comfortable in that situation um i have loaded it with games that uh make sense to chip away at in that way so i've it's basically a dedicated fire emblem machine for me at the moment so yeah. i've just by virtue of it being in my bag all the time i've played more fire emblem in the last week than i have over the last month which i you know i was doing it bit by bit mm-hmm. um i think this is how i'm going to use it just chip away at some of these uh, longer games, uh, probably mostly turn-based stuff where, you know, it doesn't need my full attention span. Uh, but I've also put other games on that are good for convenient short blasts, so notably Diablo 3, so I can do some more of the, the adventure mode and, you know, some of the more, like, ideal handheldy ones like Lumens and Thumper and stuff like that. I like it. Uh, having both is a system that works for me um, and my specific case where I just have this paranoia about taking the fat switch out with me. Um, whether I recommend that you do the same, it just depends entirely on how you use your Switch. If you're comfortable taking the fat out and about and the the risks that I, I have about that, um, you know, I'd say keep doing that. I don't think you need the light. I've still been using the fat switch just as much around the house um, and, you know, obviously docked for, for some of the prettier games. Um, and it has a bigger screen, so, you know, I'd rather up for a bigger screen at home when I have to and move, moving the saves around has not been the huge pain everyone has been saying it is and the light just alleviates my fear of taking these games out um, and it's that 3DS replacement that I was after um, so yeah so basically if, if if you're in the same boat as me and you want that you want to switch in your bag all the time and you want something a little fit in your pocket this is your option uh, if you're already doing that with your main switch it's, it's not a big deal you keep doing that that's fine so yeah um the device itself is great really well made i kind of wish the original switch had some of the this build quality um but i'm sure that'll come when they do a a future revision okay uh let's talk about some switch news Uh, Shovel Knight developer Yacht Club Games is set to become an indie publisher uh, and the Switch will be their main focus. That's that's an interesting move. I, uh, good that they're supporting the Switch as their main. Uh, obviously um, means it'll entail lots of uh, suitable indies, I think. Pretty pumped. Um, I think I like the work that they do and it's... Um... I think any any initiative that brings more indies to the Switch, or like with a particular focus on indies for the Switch, is a good thing. So, pretty excited. I don't know if they're working on anything else currently, though. That's not Shovel Knight. Really. Yeah, they just they just finished all their uh, Kickstarter promises for Shovel Knight, I believe. So, mm. cool. And with that, uh, let's talk about what we've been playing this week. Uh, so Andrew has been banging into um, asymmetrical 
multiplayer games recently, uh, which started with Friday the 13th, which he, he liked a lot, uh, despite mm. a handful of issues. Uh, one of those big issues was the license thing, which means the developers aren't allowed to support it anymore, so it's just effectively been uh, dropped. Um, however, Dead by Daylight seemed to be the perfect antithesis to that, so uh, you've been playing that one in the last week. How have you been finding it, Andrew? More than being the antithesis, it's more like the opposite side of the exact same coin. Uh, <laughs> Dead by Daylight, just like Friday the 13th, is an asymmetric online horror game where one group of players plays as a group of survivors and they try to evade a super powerful killer that is played by just one player in the match and the survivors really don't stand a chance if they get caught by the killer then they are almost certainly going to die because the killer is just intentionally that much more powerful and that's kind of a new thing that's going around in multiplayer design capcom is working on their own asymmetric multiplayer game set in the resident evil franchise now so i think this is going to be an idea that becomes maybe the next big thing in competitive multiplayer uh, but dead by daylight in particular is set in this strange alternate world that's ruled over by this thing called the entity which has pulled several dozen just regular people into its world and also about a dozen semi-supernatural killers in and it just pit them against each other in this truly horrifying i I don't know the word like blood sport basically (laughs) Uh, (laughs) because whether the survivors survive the match or not they just end up back at this campfire and they can just hang around there until they get drawn into another round with a killer and it just goes on and on and on and on and on and basically the survivors uh have the worst possible existence you can imagine it's taken the the concept of an online multiplayer game and really turned it into a horror story the survivors in each match have a single goal where they where the four survivors have to find a number of generators around the map and repair them so that way the exit to the map becomes available and as you are repairing it there are small quick time events that come up and if you fail the quick time events then a rather large explosion goes off which lets the killer know where you are so you maybe have to run away when that happens and then the killer quite more than just trying to kill the survivors is actually trying to sacrifice them to this entity that controls this mysterious world these people are all trapped in Uh, they have to first knock the player over by hitting them twice with their weapon and the killer has to be very careful about this because they can't just attack willy-nilly if they attack there's quite a long cooldown before they're able to attack again so precision and accuracy really counts and once the player is knocked over then they can be picked up by the killer and taken to a number of sacrificial hooks that are marked around the map and they're hung up there, and they are just stuck there for a little while until one of their fellow survivors comes and lets them down, or if they hang there long enough, then the entity sacrifices them and they are removed from the match, and that's how a survivor can potentially lose. And that's the killer's main goal, and much like in Friday the 13th, 
the game doesn't really act like you've won or lost when you're playing as the killer. You're just trying to do your best to murder the survivors to the best of your ability. And if you get one of them, great. If you get everybody, even better. The game is just not concerned with that kind of win-loss scenario, which uh, takes a lot of the the pressure off, I think, of you know being get good awesome. The game just doesn't seem to really care about that, which I appreciate. Each of the killers has an individual skill set. So like one killer carries a bell and when he rings it, he turns invisible uh, and then he can ring it again and it makes him decloak and that's the only way he can attack. He can't attack when he's invisible. Another killer drops bear traps. Another killer can throw axes but has a limited number of axes and so has to replenish at supply points around the map. And there's 15 total killers, so I'm not even going to describe them all. Otherwise, we'll be here all night. <laughs> <laughs> and as you're trapped in this entity's game, you're earning blood points, regardless of if you're playing as a survivor or as one of the killers. And you take these blood points between matches, and you spend them in a thing called the blood web, where you're buying perks and upgrades that exist on a character-by-character character basis. And... What perks and items come up in the blood web are completely random, and they're shown to you in small groups. Every time you bought everything in the current group of items and perks being shown to you, then you get a level up on your character, and another collection becomes available for, to you. And that's kind of an interesting system because you can earn blood points with any character or killer you want and then spend it with another one. So I could potentially play only as survivors and put all of my points into one of my killers, even though I've never actually played that killer, and that killer is suddenly level 20. So that's kind of a weird system, <laughs> but that's how it works. Really cool idea in this system is there are teachable perks that each individual character, survivor, or killer, regardless, can learn and share it with other people in their category. So if there's a particular perk that one killer has that you really like, if you get them to a high enough level, then that perk becomes teachable. And then your other killers can learn it as well. So there's real incentive to play as a variety of characters, not just the one character that you really like. Now, as I said, uh, this is very similar to Friday the 13th. So very quickly, I'm just going to run down a comparison of the two. I'm going to blow through this super fast because I promised Andy I wasn't going to talk about this game for half an hour. <laughs> uh, tutorials. Dead by Daylight has an interactive in-engine tutorial that walks you through the basics of both halves of the game. Friday the 13th has a PowerPoint presentation. Survivors. <laughs> Dead by Daylight. A single defined goal and there are more killers to face off against so there's more unpredictability. Friday the 13th has more ways to escape but there's less unity in player goals so it feels more chaotic and less unified and screwing over other counselors seems more encouraged but the survivors also get more tools to fight back you basically can't fight back in dead by daylight you are always at the mercy of the killer and friday the 13th you do occasionally get a weapon or some other means of escaping from jason but that's also because friday the 13th doesn't have the sacrifice mechanic so if jason gets you you are dead every match in friday the 13th is also a match against a jason with different strengths and weaknesses but have the same skill set Whereas the killers in Dead by Daylight have a variety of skills, but only one skill for each killer. Uh, Dead by Daylight has licensed killers. The Demogorgon from Stranger Things, Michael Myers from Halloween, the Ghostface Killer from Scream, and Amanda Young from Saw. And Friday the 13th has Jason Voorhees and nothing else. 
environment. Dead by Daylight is painfully, painfully procedurally generated. It's mostly flat areas, but it does have a good variety of settings and tile sets. Friday the 13th, the levels are better designed. They feel more real. They feel like more like a real location, but they're mostly variations on dark campgrounds with cabins and large private houses. Daily quests, Dead by Daylight has them. Friday the 13th does not. Unlockables, Dead by Daylight has the blood net, which I've described, and it also has an in-game store where you can buy cosmetics and additional content for real money. I'll talk more about that in a moment. Friday the 13th has perks, killing animations, and cosmetics available for earning in-game currency. There are no premium currencies. Online functionality, Dead by Daylight is online only, period. So maybe this is not the best purchase for a Switch if you have other options. Friday the 13th has some offline modes, but the counselor AI is very broken, being near impossible to sneak up on while also being near impossible to lose to. Matchmaking, Dead by Daylight, you choose to play as a survivor or a killer on the main menu. Killers naturally have longer wait times because you have to wait for more survivors to gather to play against and more people want to play as the killers. But if you are willing to wait for the queue, you will get to play as the killer. Friday the 13th, everyone queues at once and roles are randomly assigned at the beginning of the match. Everyone has the same wait time. You might get to play as Jason if you play enough matches in a sitting. Legal stuff. Dead by Daylight has enough original content to stand on its own, even if it loses all licensing rights. As Andy mentioned, Friday the 13th is one lawsuit away from not existing anymore. Continuing support. Dead by Daylight gets continued development and support, like the Demogorgon from Stranger Things was just added last month. And Friday the 13th has been developmentally frozen. Now let's talk about that in-game store. This is a $40 game that's monetized like a free-to-play game. Uh, there's two kinds of premium currencies. There's iridescent shards that you get every time you gain an account level. And there's the auric cells. The iridescent shards are actually really smart because it prevents you from just going into the shop and having somebody who has $200,000 in their savings account from just buying everything outright and having everything at the start. If you don't play the game and earn iridescent shards, you can't just buy whatever you want. But as for the Oryx cells, there's no way to earn this premium currency by being a loyal payer. You pay money or you don't get any new content or cosmetics. And all of the licensed characters that are probably are drawing horror fans to this package in the first place are locked behind additional paid DLC. They're all $5 each. It, I kind of looked at it like as if Overwatch charged money for its new characters and seasonal events. I was not at all pleased to see this after I'd already spent $40 for the game in the first place. But I did have a bit of a chip on my shoulder of that because this game was originally marketed as the definitive edition and third-party retailers including Amazon and all the places online you buy games, are still selling it as the definitive edition, but none of the packaging itself or the eShop actually claims that anymore. But I added it all up. There's $65 of non-cosmetic DLC that's not included in this package, and I get it. A lot of it is licensed characters. I didn't really expect the Demogorgon to be included because it just came out. Uh, on other versions of the game, Freddy Krueger and Leatherface are also part of it, but there are nowhere to be seen in this package. There's not even a mention of their existence. And with missing content and lower res graphics, this just feels like the least of the various available Dead by Daylight ports. So I think this is a good game, good concept and design. When I was in a match, I really was enjoying myself. So I think it has many advantages over Friday the 13th that makes it the clear choice, but 
that store is a really tough pill to swallow. Uh, maybe, maybe more uh, palatable if you get it on sale or something later down the line, if people are even still playing it on Switch at that point. <laughs> I'm sure this will have a a community in the long term because it doesn't have the problems that Friday the 13th is going to encounter in terms of support, but I think that community will be much more vibrant on PC. have to admit, I do love the concept of these, like even playing as one of the survivors, even though everyone will want to play as the killer, I feel like being the survivor would be just tense as anything. So yeah, I, I like it conceptually. I think it's just waiting for its killer app to come out. That that Capcom game, that Fry, not, uh, that Resident Evil, they have a code name for it, I've forgotten it, but that might be this this genre's chance to break into the mainstream. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Um, and also good that Capcom are willing to take risks, maybe off the back of indie success, but yeah. <laughs> still, still, still cool. Like they, With Resident Evil, they've had a history of just like taking chances and doing weird spin-offs, and I'm cool for them to see continue doing that, whether it works or not. So, uh, Ginny, you've been playing Overland, which uh, my impression from people I know on Twitter is that it teaches you nothing and is really hard to get into. Is that accurate? Uh, yeah, it teaches you nothing. <laughs> um, but also, I, I've i discussed my misplaced masochism in games before um, on this podcast, uh, and I'm fine with being thrown to the deep end and and the game holding me down and going drown. Um, and that usually that is fine, um, but it is very very brutal. Um, I actually had the game wish listed on Steam for the longest time. Um, I've heard about it for a while now, and I was very keen to play it. But because obviously the Switch is my favorite console, um, when I figured out it's going to Switch, I was like, meh, playing the Switch instead. Um, and I'm not going to lie, uh, the first couple of hours, uh, brutal. The only way that the game chooses to teach you what you're doing wrong or right is through abject amounts of failure. <laughs> and um, depending on how you feel about that, um, you may very well be incredibly put off, um, or you may think, you know, this is, this is fine. Um, the aesthetic, I would say, of the promo material initially on Steam was quite misleading. It looked quite, I, I, I wouldn't say peaceful, but I knew it was about a dystopia, something had gone wrong, but I didn't really quite know how brutal it was going to be. Everything seemed a little bit kind of like pastel. There was a happy dog kind of kicking around and I was like, oh yeah, you know, I like dogs. <laughs> like games with cars, you know, this should be alright. Um, and it is really brutal. It is tough. Um, it is a strategy game. Um, essentially, you start off um, with a uh, some mates and you're, the game kind of open-endedly goes, the world has been ruined. You've got to survive in it. Um, other people out here want to do the same thing. And they're pretty ruthless. Your job is to basically keep your little team alive and collect survivors if you want to um, and, and ostensibly find some sort of end to all this and find a safe haven. Um, and it explains pretty much nothing else. Um, I think I spent something like almost half an hour trying to figure out how to put fuel into my car because the game doesn't say <laughs> this is what it looks like. Um, you siphon it from other cars and other things like that and eventually the other ways to obtain it, but you don't get told this is how you would find it. Um, you look around, you kind of see, oh, these cars are all total. There can't be anything good in there, can there? And your brain doesn't really think about it. So I, I would say um, 
if you're someone that's always always exploring every hidey hole in the game and going, oh, what can I use this for? Or what might this do? Then you might actually find the challenging parts of, of Overland uh, intuitive if, if you're sort of the person that's looking into every trash can um, and every room in Pokemon to see if there's a Master Ball or a potion in there. Then you may very well not at all find the first few hours of this game difficult because um, it rewards that kind of thinking, um, that scavenger mentality. Uh, which I suppose thematically makes sense, considering that it's a survival strategy game. Um, but fresh off my terrifying experience running away from humans as a goose, um, I was just sort of not really... <laughs> didn't have my thinking cap on, so I struggled with those hours a lot. And um, it's hard. Overland, um, I'm currently probably only on the second or third zone of it. I know I've got some ways to go. and Most of my time has been spent... Uh, retrying things that I'd messed up you know scavenging for fuel uh, saving a dog uh, and then blowing myself up because I wired the wrong thing in the wrong place Um, (laughs) and everyone's on fire Um, and that's kind of how you you learn Um, I you know you you can drive your car into the wrong thing and that can mess you up completely Um, you can be discovered by people and people are often almost always stronger than you it really drives home the fact that you are surviving in a post-apocalyptic wasteland. All you're meant to do is survive. You're not meant to be powerful or to, to gain strength or to beat other people in combat, really. Your job is to just keep yourself alive and it's sort of pure self-preservation. So I think if you approach the game from that perspective philosophically and don't worry about things like, oh, can I bash the guy's head in? You know, Can I make my car look really souped up and great? Um, you know, it's more about thinking about whether or not a bigger vehicle will make you slower, will let you, you know, secure more people, but will use up more fuel, or if a smaller vehicle will keep you alive and on the road for longer, but mean that if you do see someone in trouble, you can't stop to help. So the game actually makes you make a lot of these sort of small moral choices throughout by way of these heavy-handed mechanics, which are never explained really at all, which are all figured out intuitively. And so I found that when I was making those moral choices, they made sense i wasn't approaching the van question like oh which one is better stats because i've been so trained by the game to be thinking about survival it was it made complete sense to me when the game was like oh actually a bigger car more fuel more for survivors but you know jeopardizes your own safety and a smaller car will do the opposite like that made complete sense to me from a survivalist perspective so i would say the game leans into that theme particularly well but will probably lean into it too hard for a lot of people to get any real enjoyment out of the first couple of hours because it's a lot of trial and error you do lose a lot of progress if you're if you mess up i lost something like a, probably an hour or so worth of progress at a time uh, for a couple of runs and i just wasn't really sure what i was doing um so on, on that front um it can be very discouraging but if you feel like you want a game that I don't want to say the ancestors humankind of Switch indie games because that game is esoteric and, and a puzzle upon itself and a mystery to most of the world. Um, but Overland, there's a certain beauty in how uncompromising Overland is and how it completely manages to, to warp and to twist your mindset into this survivalist, you know, sort of like, I'm really gonna, to, gonna die here, this is it for me. I think it's interesting how the game approaches questions of power and survivability in the apocalypse, and it's a nice look at that concept and that philosophy, but boy, is it difficult. So that's my caveat. It is real difficult. When I saw it on the Switch eShop, it just looked absolutely up my street. But mm. uh, yeah, the, the, the talk of how 
tough it is just to get into did put me off a little so so mixed experience uh, mm. and only really jump in if you're massive on hardcore survival games i guess yeah i would say so yeah. even though it plays more like a strategy the concept and the premises and all that and the the way the game will tell you nothing that, that i would say that leans very hard at the survival stuff um and talking of dying a lot and death <laughs> <laughs> what a segue right? i i am so good at segues andrew has been playing darksiders 2 definitive edition which is a terrible it's a it's awful <laughs> <laughs> Probably worse than War Mastered Edition, but you have been playing the sequel to Darksiders, uh, where you play as Death, the second horseman in their uh, their, their version of the law. Uh, how are you finding this in, in comparison to that first one? Well, this is the direct sequel to Darksiders One. It picks up directly from the ending of that game, and I don't want to spoil that game because it did have a pretty decent story. But the situation at the end of the game is war is being held prisoner after having summoned his three brothers into the world as well let's just leave it at that and you pick up this game playing as death who is the most powerful and deadliest of the four horsemen who uh i I should note here have nothing to do aside from name and appearance with the actual uh four horsemen of the apocalypse from the book of revelations there is no christian god in this game Uh, This game is bigger, larger, and more ambitious, and I think the game illustrates this very well straight out of the gate, because in the first Darksiders, War had to wait until almost the end of the game to get his horse, and he could only use it in a few areas. In Darksiders 2, when you are given control of death, death begins with his horse, and there seems to be far more large areas where it's used to travel and explore. Unfortunately, this also means more loading, and there's quite a bit of buffering when entering some doorways going between large areas. The setting feels more focused on its dark fantasy aspects versus Darksiders, which was very focused on the post-apocalypse setting. This is more of an RPG uh, versus Darksider 1's more Metroid-style upgrading. I was delighted to find that the combat system has been brought over almost exactly as it was. Uh, There's two attack buttons. One of them uses your basic weapon who for death is his pair of twin size, and then he can also equip a number of secondary weapons, and and all of his combos are done by just pressing one of these two buttons with different timings. So there's not a lot of things to really memorize, and if you learn this combo system, you can do some pretty impressive things, but if you're also just a button masher, you'll have a pretty good time with it too. Uh, it's very approachable, and it works both ways, really. You don't have to learn this system, to be good with it but if you do you can do some very impressive things it's not anything like like a platinum style game where you really need to learn all the different controls and abilities you can do to maximize your effectiveness now using this combat system i was absolutely delighted when i killed the first pack of enemies and they dropped a bunch of gold as well as some randomized loot so this is really more of an action rpg and you take that gold and you can use it to buy things and the loot you equip and it actually equips on death it all has a slightly different look so if that's kind of your kind of thing if you enjoy that aspect of rpgs this game has quite a bit of it to get you 
And very shortly into the game, you arrive in the game's town. There might be more. I don't know. I haven't gotten that far into the game. But this is definitely a town. It has NPCs. There's vendors inside of it. There's NPCs you can talk to who have Mass Effect-style conversation wheels, and they give you side quests. So I haven't played very deeply into this game, uh, but based on these early impressions, like I talked about Darksiders earlier in the year, I liked it, but I also said that I didn't have a very strong memory of it. It didn't make a great impression on me. If that game is like a solidly three-star experience, so far Darksiders 2 feels like a solidly four-star experience. Nice. Just expands on the original and makes it more... More engaging. Mm-hmm. It's it's a nice game to play in between the year's big releases. It's a uh, I don't want to call it filler because it's completely enjoyable. It's just one of those games when you get to the end of the year, you're not you're not still thinking about it. It's just a good way to fill time, which sounds insulting, but I don't mean it to be insulting. I love those games. That, that that's video games generally. <laughs> How dare you? How dare you, sir? They, they just. Uh... They just help to fill in the time before I'll die, and that's that, that's fine. <laughs> I thought that's what eating and work was for. <laughs> nah, they're, they're the things you do while you're waiting to get to play video games. <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah, so that game had more RPG mechanics. So talking of games with RPG mechanics, I am on mm. fire today. Dragon Quest XI Echoes of an Elusive Age has come in a definitive edition with an S in the title, uh, which I presume stands for Switch. Now, I haven't yet played the Switch version, I've picked it up, but I did just start Nino Kuni. Uh, both of these games, Nino Kuni and Dragon Quest XI, are some of my favourite JRPGs mm. uh, in recent years, um, and having to make the choice between the two <laughs> is is kind of frustrating so but i did play this one more recently so i'm I'm happy to wait a little bit longer because i've beaten it i'll 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 give it an overview and then andrew you can uh give your viewpoints on it so far so uh dragon quest 11 is sort of like a very classic jrpg in the purest sense it's very traditional yeah but with a lot of uh modernizations so it, it it really takes the classic format and just puts it into 2019 uh so there's a lot of quality of life life things in here uh, unfortunately the menu system is not one of them no uh, <laughs> i did not enjoy that um so but in this game you play as the heir of dundrasil who is a child uh with the mark of the luminary which i think means stuff to people who have played the older games these the dragon quest games were never out in my regions when i was a kid so i could never have got to them and this is sort of a birthmark that just labels him as this reincarnated version of a legendary hero which I think is from the first game based on the in-game lore and he's basically been reincarnated to come back and combat this really deadly darkness that's growing uh, so he's born to a royal family uh, the the castle that he is born into is attacked shortly after his birth and he is sent riding down the river in uh, a bassinet uh, down to the rural town of Cobblestone where he's adopted by a new family and he just lives a normal rural life completely unaware of who he is and his significance until he comes of age, he hits puberty and then starts ex- displaying extraordinary power, much like I did when I was a child because <laughs> um, there's a letter stashed in his bassinet, his mum knows what he is and who he is so she she sends him to 
nearby Heliodorf for training, which is custom for Dundrasil princes. When he gets there, instead of being labelled as this beacon of hope, he is called Darkspawn and ran out of the town. And there it becomes a fugitive. Along the way, he meets up with a really, really colourful cast of characters. Uh, the, the hero in the game himself is very much uh, the typical silent uh, cardboard stand for you to impart your own uh, belief system onto. Mm. Uh, and he's more of a vehicle for the other characters to shine. Judging from Andrew's show notes, he hasn't hit that point yet. <laughs> <laughs> this character, like, I, so far the silent stuff has not been helping this game, especially since I, there are flashback sequences where you see the luminary as a child and the child talks. So it's like, why doesn't the adult talk? <laughs> and then, like, I, I'm not much further past the premise that Andy described because this is a Dragon Quest game and these games are not noted for their rapid pacing. Uh, but anyway, in that sequence, uh, the hero's hometown is threatened. And since the character doesn't talk, there's no real justification given for why the hero isn't just bl- blazing to get back home to make sure everybody's okay. Now, you're, you're off dealing with this this other stuff that this other character you meet up with wants to get taken care of first. is like... Shouldn't I be getting home to make sure the people who raised me and the people I grew up with are alive? <laughs> no, yeah, we'll just we'll deal with this rock that got stolen, whatever. But I guess Andy is saying that that situation improves, so I will reserve yeah. judgment. <laughs> and and how it does that is that all the characters you meet who will become part of your party are sort of kind of stereotypes. Um, which they then use in ways to subvert your expectations of those stereotypes. So uh, I think you've probably met Eric, mm-hmm. who is a uh, boorish but noble thief, who, you know, sort of thing that's been done before. Um, Anime trope. Yeah. Uh, and then you have uh, my favourite, who, who you'll meet a lot later in the game, is, uh, I won't spoil it for you, but he's called Silvando. Mm. Um, and his stereotype is... Okay, good. Me too. His, his stereotype is like very very <clears throat> uncomfortable at first in a way it's like I, I was worried what they were doing because uh, Japanese developers don't always have the best tact with dealing with characters of his persuasion um, but Andy the way is subverted... saying that Silvando is camp gay <laughs> yeah I was like I don't know how much longer we can talk around it it's kind of becoming very okay. obvious <laughs> I, I was trying it was more for spoilers rather than just being you know yeah. PC or whatever, but um, he is, uh, yeah, he's he's very stereotypically gay. It's never explicitly stated that uh, that's his persuasion, but they use that to wonderful effect with his backstory. And he left as one of my absolute favorite party members. I left mm. him in all the time because I adore him, and hopefully you do too. I, I I did write a review on my rubbish site that I haven't been keeping up to date at the time. Um, we all have one and of those. Bef- and I had my my opinion on, on Silvando, and I ran it by, like, several people from all walks of life to just make sure I wasn't misreading him correctly. And, yeah, they were all they were just like, yep, yeah, that, that was my, my thought process on it, too. Uh, so, yeah, I'd be interested to in see what your point of view on that is, because I, I feel like that is the point with a lot of these characters, is that they use those stereotypes to, to say something. So, now... As for the gameplay itself, uh, 
as a traditional JRPG, it is a turn-based combat system. Uh, it plays out in an arena where you can move your characters around, but the movement just adds nothing really. It doesn't mm. determine whether enemies can hit you or not. It's just purely for modernization's sake, I think. And if you want to make fights look a bit more dramatic, you can do. I, I wondered if that system like had more impact later on in the game because there's also you can turn on this thing i guess it's called classic camera which just makes the game mm-hmm. play exactly like older style dragon quest games knowing that maybe i'll just turn classic camera on now yeah i i, I did that too when i realized that was an option i think like it would have been really interesting in this game to sort of use character placement um for your strategy but then I also think with the way it's set up, it was going to be too easy. And I also don't think it was going to be that sort of game. I think this was always intentioned to be a traditional JRPG. Um, instead, the depth in combat comes from the flexibility and range of abilities and spells you can unlock as your characters party up. Um, so you get some abilities at certain levels, as you would expect, but then there's skill trees, not unlike uh, those found in the likes of Final Fantasy X, uh, where you spend your points on like a, a these huge trees. Um, each character can focus on like two or three different styles, and it's up to you how you want to, to, to progress them. Um, so... Uh, the main character, he could specialise in short swords and shields or great swords. Uh, there's a character called Veronica who's like a an offensive mage in a couple of you know, she's offensive mage in both styles of that term. Um and you can <laughs> you can use her abilities on uh, her great staff or you can have her use more conventional stuff, so that's that's um it, there's a lot of flexibility to get them to play how you wanna play. You could also spread your points thinly and try and you know have someone who's incredibly versatile but not that strong uh they're all choices you can have uh there's also a pep system where um there's like hidden mechanics where after a number of fights certain party members might enter a state that they call pep uh, and that allows you to do like some really powerful abilities uh either solo ones or they can actually work together to do massive uh, damage together. Uh, it's really flexible and I, I, it sort of gave me a lot of pause for experimentation and you can actually fix your configuration whenever you want at uh, one of the save statues. Uh, so there's, there's a lot of room to play with and it, you, can, you can find a way to make the party battle how you want them to battle. So the other thing the game does uh, really well is that it's it always drives you forward in the correct direction without being overly linear. Uh, <laughs> So each area sort of naturally leads you where you need to go, just from the the geography of of the thing. You get into this really familiar pattern of just finding a town, they have a problem, you solve the problem, and then you move on to the next region and start the cycle again. Uh, But there's still plenty of scope to go off and explore and find secrets and, you know, find those uh, enemies that will give you heaps of XP and all that sort of thing. Um, if you find yourself stuck, uh, which happened to me very rarely, but the uh, the area map will flat out state your next destination if you want it to. Um, and if you're inside city walls, if you're not sure what your goal should be, any NPC that's got a pink dot will just make it abundantly clear what you should be looking for while you're there. Um, so it's those elements aren't ever shoved in your face, they're just optional, and if you want them, you can use them. Now, the the visuals on the PS4 especially are amazing like that is it was the visuals that actually made me want to 
play it <laughs> very shamelessly. Uh, how does it stack up on Switch Andrew? I haven't had a chance to boot it up and I hadn't tried the demo, so I don't know how how good the fidelity is. It looks pretty good to me. The monsters especially are very good looking, but I haven't played it on PS4, so I can't really say exactly how it looked on that, but uh, what I've seen of the PS4 version, I was not especially impressed by the environment design or by the characters, but that that's probably very much by design because the Dragon Quest series is very traditional, as we said, uh, and it, they have a visual style that they go for uh, from game to game to game, and it, it has evolved since the first game, obviously, because the first game came out in 1985, but uh, mm. if you look at Dragon Quest Eleven and you look at Dragon Quest Ten, you know, they, they look very similar. Uh, so I'm sure that's by design and use the same concept art to make the new character models so you know you'll always be seeing the big muscle bound guys with the tiny heads wearing the helmets they're in every dragon <laughs> quest game they use the same character design and they reuse the same music a lot i'm not saying it poorly there they reuse the same music tracks <laughs> so if you've played a dragon quest game then a lot of this is going to feel very familiar to you and uh, if you're familiar with the dragon quest visual design you will be very comfortable with what you're seeing here. Yeah, I think because it was the first time I'd played a Dragon Quest, uh, that was like a real high high point for me when I when I played the PS4 version because everything just looked I, like I'd watch a movie in that style. Absolutely. Well, they made one. Uh, uh, it didn't get good reviews, oh, they, but they made one. Ah, oh, damn. <laughs> okay, I'd, I'd watch a good movie with that visual style. <laughs> um, and yeah, it's just like this really comforting rhythm. But, yeah, you know, if you've played a JRPG before, you, you know what you're getting into, and well, you, you, it's it's comfort food. Exactly, yeah. Comfort food is the word I was going to use, but especially with Dragon Quest. I mean, as I said, the first one came out in 1985, 1986. It was the first JRPG. It was. All the other JRPGs out there are based, not so much on the first one, but based on Dragon Quest three. Uh, Dragon Quest 3 introduced a lot of things that people love in Dragon Quest. A lot of things people in the West attribute to Final Fantasy actually started in Dragon Quest 3. And this is just this seminal RPG series, which has unfortunately not gotten the attention it deserves in the West for various factors. But that is slowly starting to change. Now, this is a very, I'm going to use the word again, traditional RPG. Uh, it, it has not changed much in 30 years. It has changed. There are uh, modern conveniences added to it, but Dragon Quest 1, 2, and 3 were added to the Switch eShop the same day as Dragon Quest 11 came out. If you go back and you play any one of those, it's going to feel very similar to this game. If you like them, you're probably going to like this game too. If you don't like those three games, those three 25- to 30-year-old games, you're probably not going to find anything in here to interest you either. Now, luckily... There is a very, very generous demo available for Dragon Quest XI. I've heard it's five to ten hours long, and I'm playing the retail copy. I only just hit five hours, so <laughs> I don't know exactly when it ends, but if you play that demo, you will get a very good idea of if this game's combat system and the relentless pace of combat, because you will be getting into hundreds of battles in just those few hours uh if that's going to be something that interests you uh so i would highly recommend trying that demo this is 
one of the most important RPG series, if not video game series, period. And this seems to be another excellent entry in it. Uh, as I've said in the past, Dragon Quest VIII, my favorite JRPG all the time, and with any luck, this game will supplant it. Um, you did mention the music before. Um, I just wanted to say, like, the battle music just cracks me up every time because it sounds more like a, a 60s spy thriller than JRPG <laughs> battle music, and I just laugh every single battle. It was... Uh, the game's just a joy. I love it. Um, and I can't wait to play it again. Stupid Nino Kuni. <laughs> I'm stuck, too. I, I love Dragon Quest Eleven for being super traditional. Like, I, I, people know I, I'm fed up with Final Fantasy because every Final Fantasy is something new. I love Dragon Quest because mm. every Dragon Quest is the same. Uh, <laughs> but Nino Kuni, I really appreciate for being something you know fairly fresh as far as a console RPG goes. So I'm kind of trapped mm. between the two of them. I don't want to stop playing either one, but if I'm going to get anywhere in either of them, I'm going to have to choose. Yeah, I think I'm going to end up having uh, Dragon Quest Eleven S on my Switch Lite <laughs> as the main. Uh, and then keep playing Nino Kuni. One thing we haven't talked about though is that you can switch between HD and 16-bit graphics, but it, it's not quite as um, one buttony as they made out, or other, you know, new ports of new ports of old games have have made it in the past. Um, just want to talk about that and how that works. How that got started was on the 3DS version, where it really was that simple. You just press a button, it switches between a 16-bit style overhead you know that era of rpg graphics and uh fully polygonal exploration modern graphics but that was on 3ds uh, it doesn't work that way in this one because it does have the playstation 4 quality hd polygonal graphics and the 16-bit graphics so if you want to switch to the 16-bit graphics you have to go to one of the churches which are like the des the designated save points in dragon quest and there you can switch to the 16-bit graphics but you have to make a new save point and you have to fall back to like a specific checkpoint uh, in how the game is divided up into different chapters. So that's not quite so seamless. You're basically going to want to decide in advance which form of the game you want to play. My recommendation is to just play with the polygonal graphics because I think the world is a lot more interesting to explore that way and also because there's an area called Talkington you can find which sends you off onto these little side quests into areas based on the older Dragon Quest games and in these Talkington side areas you do play those areas in the 16-bit graphical style so you you will get a taste of what that is like so that's my recommendation but you can do whatever you want. I'm sure it's a great game either way. Yeah, and that that feature, those side quests are Switch exclusive, as there as with a bunch of um, character specific offshoots, I believe as well. So I'm, I haven't experienced those because I've only played it on PS4. So I look forward to sampling them when I get to it. Okay, and the last game we're going to talk about this week is Ori and the Blind Forest Definitive Edition. Uh, this is a game I just played on Xbox One uh, X a couple of months ago. Uh, and I am just as excited to delve back in again. Haven't had a chance to do it this week. I have bought it already. Uh, so, uh, again, I'll just give you a quick overview. I'm, I'm gathering you're not that far in. I just cleared the essence of water, so I'm like a third to a quarter of the way through the game. Yeah. You don't know exactly. Yeah, yeah that, that's roughly it. Um, so this is uh, an exploration platformer. Uh, people will keep calling it a Metroidvania which I hate the term, um, and it's 
It is, but not quite. And it is just a beautiful game all around. Uh, you start off as this uh, weak little creature called Ori, whose uh, adopted mother, who's also big like ape-like creature, seemingly passes. Uh, and then you sort of set around trying to restore this this forest, the, the, the blind forest. Um, as you explore, you will... You know, unlock new power-ups, you'll get stronger, you'll do all this sort of stuff. What I will say for someone who's who's still fairly early on in the game, Andrew, um, you'll find that the the way you move around like exponentially becomes heaps easier. Hmm. As you, the more you progress, so like the the range of mobility you have towards the end is just phenomenal. Um, I yeah, I saw the double I'm, jump, and at the end of a skill tree was a triple jump. So I'm I'm sure that's the case. Yeah, and then mm. there's, there's dashes, and then there's you can swim and all this sort of stuff. Um, I would say that um, the last game that I played that had that sort of level indifference in traversal was uh, SteamWorld Dig Two. Mm-hmm. Um, and just they're not similar but just in that you know that level of difference between the two so it's one of those games where you, you're constantly getting stronger and each time you find a new power up that'll let you go back somewhere else and get further into that that area and then open up to new areas i find the way the story's told is 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 really beautiful yeah uh, the the way the so is there's no there are enemies that you can beat but there are there are no like real traditional boss fights. They're kind of like oh. they're kind of like running sequences. Mm. So you've probably experienced one having having just beat that first area. Yeah, I I was expecting more bosses because I have run into like a few like places where I got locked in a small room with a super strong monster. But mm-hmm. I, I was expecting like bosses. But okay expectations yeah. averted that's fine mm. yeah it, it just it um it's all about traversal and mm. you're, you're learning to use the things you've picked up yeah to, I, to escape from a thing i i could tell i was being really you know slow and methodical when i was playing because i, I wanted to make sure i was getting as many power-ups as i could but mm-hmm. i could tell just looking at this game and looking at some of the things that i was doing that i i had to do just to get through a room that the speed running community for this game must be absolutely mesmerizing yeah <laughs> it uh yeah but the, thankfully those sequences are they're tough but they're really fun uh, to overcome mm-hmm. um just because there aren't traditional bosses that's not to say there aren't enemies uh i'm trying not to give anything away really <laughs> But uh, yeah, I love it, and you know, I especially aside from the art style, aside from the level design, which I think is first class, the music is just so wonderful, and yeah. I, it's what I use to write to. Like I listen to it at least a couple of times a week, even now, months later. Um, it is so good. No, sorry, it's just been me waffling. Um, <laughs> uh, so you you've beat that sort of first main area. Um, what are your thoughts? Do you like it? Uh, are you keen to play more? Is it what you expected? I was. I haven't looked at much of the marketing for this game, so I didn't see a lot of the older advertisements for it. I only saw the stuff they've been putting out for Switch, which has really emphasized that, you know, kind of almost Celeste style of getting through the level as fast as you can while something is chomping at the bit to kill you. Uh, Mm. that was kind of the game I was expecting where really when I sat down and started playing this I was like oh 
this is Metroid, uh, <laughs> but we've run into this problem before. I've talked about a lot of games of this style on the Switch, and like even the ones I really like, like the big one is Hollow Knight, which I talked about last summer. I've always felt really bad about when I talked about Hollow Knight on the show because even though I loved it and I could tell it was a great game, this style of game is just so oversaturated at this point because like every other indie game is this kind of game i just i don't know how to compliment them anymore except to say this is another one of those games and it's a good one Uh, so (laughs) ori in the blind forest is another one of those games and it's a good one and I, i i don't know how to gush about it any more than that uh this is up there with hollow knight it's good yeah i I, I, I just don't have the ability to compliment these games anymore i'm sorry Uh, if i had to pick between the two i would pick this in a heartbeat really yeah and i I love hollow knight i think i would take hollow knight but that that's just a purely aesthetic decision i like adventure games with swords that's just me yeah that's fair and both are great games um i just i just think this one has is like the full package and the, the traversal just becomes so pleasing uh, in a way that uh, Hollow Knight just just didn't quite get there. So yeah, so that's that. Uh, and you know, it's another Microsoft exclusive that's come to Switch, and long may that continue because that is a, a good partnership, and that's something I hope they continue yeah. in, into the next gen and beyond because it's only good for people like us who play games. Okay, so what are we playing this week? Andrew, we'll start with you. Ghostbusters The Video Game Remastered is out Friday. I have the physical version pre-ordered, and I don't know if it's going to arrive Friday or not. If it does not, I'm going to play Neocab. If it does, I'm going to play Ghostbusters. Cool. And Ginny? Cool. Um, I want to play Neocab um, as well, because it seems sort of like up my alley. Um, and I just think the gig economy is busted, so why not play yeah. a game about it? <laughs> um <laughs> But no, it aesthetically looks like my stuff, so I really want to play that. And I want to play more Astral Chain. Um, um, so, yeah. Cool. Uh, I'm just going to be playing all the RPGs. So I'm going to keep playing Fire yeah. Emblem. Um, I'm coming up to the big event, finally, which uh, has... You mean the the skip? Yep, the the big skip. Oh my skip. god, wait. How long is it? Wait, hang on. This is... Wait, wait, wait. wait. <laughs> really? Yeah, like I said, I've, I've barely played it and I've been chipping away like a couple of weeks okay. at a time in, okay, in games. He's finally getting to the scene where they call time out and this person <laughs> passes through the crowd with a big box handing out eye patches. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, okay, you know, great. Well, it definitely opens up from yeah. there. So, <laughs> um, But I, I have also had that thing where, you know, because I've been playing it so sparingly, I've been missing out on angling learning certain skills to recruit the people i want so that's right. probably fundamentally broken for me at this point so we'll we'll see how <laughs> i go um if i had the time i would start over but i'm not going to do that i'm just gonna keep yeah going. um yeah uh i'll keep playing nino kuni and i'm gonna start ori at some point this week because it's just so good that i can't leave it yeah that's it <laughs> Thank you.
And that's it for episode 92. Uh, thanks for listening to the episode. Uh, if you enjoyed it, please leave us a review on iTunes. It'll really help us to get noticed. You can listen and subscribe on Stitcher, TuneIn, and other podcast services. Be sure to join our Discord server to interact with the lively Switch Focus community. Follow us on Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, and at switchfocuspodcast.com for updates, news, and other content. Links are in the show notes. If you'd like to support the show, uh, you can buy us a coffee. Details are on our website. Thanks in advance. Uh, this episode was edited by uh, Craig Windle, also known as Windmills at Dawn, uh, and you can follow them on Twitter at Craigity Craig. You can follow the three of the main panelists individually on Twitter. I'm at Flame Rose Toast. Andrew is at Play Critically. Uh, he also streams at twitch.tv forward slash Play Critically. And Ginny is at Ginny Woes. Cool, cool.